continue our series, Colossians chapter 2. We're ending this chapter today. And in it, Paul writes, beginning in verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head, who from the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why are you... Why... (laughs) As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." 34 years ago, Barb and I were in Madison, Wisconsin, learning to implement the Bethel Bible series. Bethel Bible series is arguably the best series uh, that there is to take lay people through the Bible from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And the purpose of this two-week training was that pastors gathered from around the country And they would hear how it was that this would be rolled out. The way it works is that a particular minister goes back to his church and picks 20 or 25 people to begin a two-year study every week on Old and New Testament. There's homework, there are tests, and the reason why it's so arduous is because those graduates will then do a one-year study survey of the Bible, Old and New Testament, to the congregation at large. And this continues over and over again. Hebron Church uh, did it back in the 1970s, the Bethel Bible series, and there's still people today who talk about it. So Barbara and I are there in Wisconsin, and we expect that the author of the series, Harley Swiggum, is going to teach us. But when we get there, we find out Harley isn't there. It's a guy by the name of Robert Wise, who is from Oklahoma City. And after about uh, 15 minutes of the first session in two weeks, we all recognized that we had been blessed to have Robert Wise teach us. Because from the very beginning, he soared. And the reason he soared was not only because he knew the Scripture so well, but because he had a life experience that he brought to bear on the study of Scripture. He had great illustrations, great stories. Harley Swiggum would come into the class in the last week and say that for a number of years he tried to get someone else to teach this teacher's or these pastor's uh, series and nobody could do it. They were good, good for a couple of days and then they'd sort of tail off, but not Robert Wise. He would soar and continue to soar. Throughout the years I've used some of his stories in uh, my um, sermons But this week when I was in this text, I thought of Robert Wise, and I thought about something I hadn't thought about since probably that day. 
And so I thought I'd share it with you as we begin our study of this particular text. It turns out that uh, Robert Wise was adopted. He never knew his parents. In fact, he didn't even know when he was adopted. He later found out he was adopted at one week. And it never bothered him. He never knew much about it. He knew that it had happened because his adoptive parents told him. But all through middle school and high school, it didn't bother him. All through college and graduate school, it didn't bother him. But once he got his Ph.D. in psychology and theology, he had this desire in him to find the truth about his birth parents. And so he began to go on a search. And this was before the Internet. And so after about a year, he's in a small town in Alabama, and he's knocking on a little door of a little house on a little street, and a woman opens it, and she has tears in her eyes, and she embraces him, she begins to kiss him, it's his maternal grandmother. And she welcomes him into the house, and she leaves him in the living room in a chair and goes into the kitchen and gets a plate of cookies and comes out with, a, with some iced tea and cookies. And for about a half hour, she tells him all about his mama and his daddy and everything about all the relatives. And finally, after about 30 minutes, Robert said to her, Grandma, who are we? And he said she looks at him for a second or two, gets up from her chair, goes to the windows and closes the blinds and then draws the draperies. And then she comes back to her chair, puts on a little light, leans into him and says, We're Jewish. (laughs) And suddenly he says, The shadows are lifted. Suddenly it all makes sense. He knows Christ. Jesus is his Lord. He loves the scriptures, New Testament and Old. And suddenly, all the shadows are gone. And he recognizes this is by God's grace. And as he's thinking of that, she says to him, Robert, your mama gave birth to you in Dachau, German concentration camp. And after she gave birth, within five days, you were taken out of that camp and taken to Kansas. And two days later, your mama and daddy went to the gas chamber and died. Webster says a shadow is a dark area or dark shape produced by something coming between the rays of light and a surface. And in that Alabama living room, 
in the brightness of the light of truth. Robert Wise said there were no more shadows. Now think of what Paul is saying here when he talks about shadows. What he's saying is religion is all a shadow. Jesus is the reality. All of the rituals, all of the religious practices, all of the sacrifices are shadows of what is to be found in Christ. All of those things are fluff. Jesus is the stuff. And that's exactly the opposite of what the false teachers were saying. The false teachers were saying that Jesus is the shadow and religion and its practices are the stuff. And you know, most people inside and outside the church agree more with the false teachers than with, G- with Paul. For most people, the Christian life, when they think about it, 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 it all comes down to what they do that matters most, to which Paul would say that is absolute hogwash. And you can prove it from this text. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the point. Notice this point in verses 9 and 10. For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now we saw this last week that when Paul summarizes the argument, he says, See to it that you are not taken captive. And the word he uses for captive is a word he uses throughout the New Testament in his writings. It's a favorite word of his, but in this particular case, he's using a word that derives from the Hebrew word synagogue. And so what Paul is saying is, watch out that no one snatches you away from the gospel and carries you back to religion. Beware, he says, of anything that focuses your attention on you rather than on Jesus Christ. Religion says, this is what I must do to make myself acceptable to God. The gospel says there's nothing you can do to make yourself acceptable to God. Only Christ can do what needs to be done to make you acceptable to, to God, and He has done it all. That's the heart of Paul's argument. Not only has Christ forgiven you and redeemed you, but He's inaugurated a whole new kingdom, a whole new age, a whole new way of life. He is in you and you are in Him. Therefore, all powers and authorities have been stripped of their power by the might of His cross. Now think about that. In all of human history, there's been no greater power and authority than the power and authority of self-made religion. And no self-made religion was more powerful than Judaism, the old covenant of Israel. And what Paul is saying is that everything that the law contains, everything that the writings contain, everything that the prophets say are only shadows of the reality that we find in Christ. Therefore, everything that God intended to flow into our lives, 
His love, His power, His riches are found not in our doings, but in the doings of Jesus Christ. Three years ago, we studied the book of Hebrews. And we noticed that one of the descriptors of Jesus was our advocate. And we said that in the first century, if you got in trouble with the law and you had to go before a king or a judge, you needed an advocate. And what that advocate would do would be he would go into the courtroom, he would go into the throne room, he would go in and he would represent you. You wouldn't be there, he'd be there. It wasn't your performance that determined your innocence or your guilt, it was the performance of your advocate. It wasn't your brilliance, it wasn't your eloquence, it was his. If your advocate won, you'd win. If your advocate lost, you'd lose. In the eyes of the court, you were in your advocate and he was in you, and that's Paul, what Paul is saying about Jesus. One time, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that he had a foolproof way of determining whether a person really understood the gospel and whether they really, truly had become a Christian. He said, it's a very simple test. After I explain to them the way of Christ... I will ask them, are you ready to declare that Jesus is your Lord? And if they hesitate, and, they, and I say to them, what's the matter? And they say, I'm not sure I'm good enough. I'm not sure I'm ready yet. Then at once I know that I've wasted my breath. They're still thinking in terms of themselves. It sounds really modest to say, I don't believe I'm good enough, but actually that's the heart of denial. It's the very denial of the faith. The essence of the Christian faith is that none of us are good enough. Only Jesus is good enough. And we cast our lives upon Him. That's exactly what Paul is saying. That's his point. It's all about Jesus it's all about your laying yourself at His feet every day. And then second, our second point is the problem. Look at verses 16 and 70. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to festivals or new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now in this text, Paul is addressing... The fact that in the face of serious belief, Christians of every generation are faced with three particular lies. He calls them idle notions in Galatians chapter 3. He calls them empty deceit in verse 8 of chapter 2 of Colossians. And though they're idle and though they're empty, they persist in buffeting us. Every one of us is buffeted by these idle notions, these empty, deceitful sayings, these lies. And the reason they buffet us so badly is they not only come from outside of us, they come from inside of us. I've told you this before, Tim Keller and Kathy, they moved to New York City about 35 years ago. And they didn't have much money, so they lived in Manhattan in a high-rise tenement that was somewhat seedy. 
And in the basement, especially in the summertime, in the basement there was something that everybody loved to, to go and spend just a little bit of time with, and that was a Coke machine because it was hot in New York City in the summer. And at that point, a Coke was two quarters, 50 cents. And what would happen is they'd go down and they'd put the first quarter in and it would go in the slot and go all the way through the machine and go into the money cup and you could hear it click. They'd put the second one in and invariably it would get stuck somewhere between the slot and the money container. And you know what they'd have to do? They'd have to beat on it or kick it. In fact, that got so good that they realized all you needed was the right hand right below the slot, just bang, and it would flop in. And Kathy Keller came to Tim one day and said, you know, that's just like the gospel. Martin Luther said, we must beat the gospel into our minds, lest we grow discouraged. In other words, what Luther is saying is what Paul is saying here and elsewhere, that the job of the Christian is not the doings that we can do. The job of the Christian is to beat the gospel of Jesus Christ into our minds because it's so counterintuitive to believe that we do nothing, He's done everything, and we rely completely on Him. Beat it into our heads. Luther knows you have to until it drops all the way from your head to your heart. Because everything in us and around us says it's too good to be true. So he mentions three deceitful lies that always challenge us. Three shadows that often pass for reality. Each one of them are a persistent plague not only against Christians in Colossae, but in Christians at Hebron, there are three lies that pass for truth. Three shadows that pretend to be the reality, and they aren't. And Paul talks about them. Marty said only two points today. Yeah, but the second one has three points. So here it is. First, he talks about legalism. That's what he's talking about in verse 16. Legalism is an excessive adherence to rules and regulations. It's founded on one single precept, and that is our, our eternal destiny is based on our external behaviors. Now, legalism is in every culture. It's in every religion. And legalistic rules and requirements are always based on the culture of the moment. Back in the 1920s, when Babe Ruth was hitting home runs with reckless abandon, he was, uh, he was able to go to England and to London and to meet with King George. And before he got to the king's court, he went through a rather strenuous etiquette protocol. They said, now Babe, when you get there to the king, you need to bow slightly. You need to wait until he speaks. You need to go through all these forms. This is the proper etiquette. He is king. So the moment comes and they usher Babe Ruth into King George's court and he says, Hi, king! And he almost sets off an international incident. Now the Jews were obsessed with diet. What's happening in Colossae is that these false teachers, these strict adherence to certain dietary provisions, 
We're telling these Christians that to really know God and to really please Him and to understand the deeper truths of the spiritual life, you needed to watch what you ate and drank. In other words, what they were saying is, the way to get grace is by watching your works. And no matter what period of history you select, in the last 2,000 years, the same thing is true. In 1928, Donald Gray Barnhouse was speaking to a group of 200 students outside of Philadelphia. And after he finished, one of his practices was to have a question and answer session. And this first questioner was an older woman who stood up and said, Dr. Barnhouse, there are a number of young ladies here who are not wearing stockings and they are offending me. Barnhouse looked at her and said, the Virgin Mary didn't wear stockings. In fact, did you know that it was only prostitutes in the 15th century in Italy who first wore stockings? Prostitutes! And then it was 200 years later when Queen Victoria wore them that they began to be the badge of a prude. You're offended that young ladies here, some of them are not wearing stockings? Really? I remember years ago hearing Tony Campolo ask a question by a very sincere Christian. He said, can, some, can Christians dance? You know what Tony Campolo said? Some can, some can't. <laughs> Billy Graham's grandson was beginning to wear earrings before it was fashionable for a man to wear earrings and people were talking about it. And they all thought, what would Billy and Ruth say about this? You know what Ruth did? She went out and bought several pairs of earrings and she went down to see her grandson. She put them on him and then took a picture and said to him, you're even more handsome now than you've, always, than you've ever been. What Paul is saying is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 13. It's not what goes into a man or on a man or into a woman, or on a woman that matters. It's what comes out of their heart. That's what defiles them. And what Paul is saying is, anyone who's focusing on external rules as a sign of spiritual maturity is a whack job. After all, no one was better at rules and regulations than the Pharisees. You know what Jesus called them? Whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but you stink on the inside. There's a place for legalism, but it's never, never a way in which we receive grace. Second, he says not only is there a, the lie of legalism, there's the lie of mysticism. Let no one, and he says, let no one disqualify you insisting on the worship of angels or visions or arrogant babblings that spring from the sensuous mind. Now this is all around us today. What is mysticism? It is a subjective experience that is interpreted as spiritual truth. It might be a vision. It might be some secret knowledge. It might be some ecstatic experience. It might be some special feeling. I've had people say to me sometimes, I don't feel it. No problem. 
In the first century, as in our day, there was no way to verify whether someone's subjective experience was genuine or not. What the mystics were saying is that somebody who hasn't had their particular experience or had their particular feelings, if someone didn't have them, then they really weren't on the inside. They weren't really spiritually aware. And what Paul is saying is, if your testimony of your experience and your feeling doesn't square with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Word of God, it's to be avoided. Years ago, I was in Virginia. I remember sitting at a a kitchen table with a man who was from another state, and he was a preacher, and he said to me and to others that were sitting around that table that he never sinned. He said he used to sin, he doesn't sin anymore. Not only that, he turned in the Bible to Romans chapter 8, where Paul talks about the manifested sons of God and these who will usher in the second coming of Christ. He said, I'm one of them. You say, what proof did he have? He didn't have any proof. The only proof he could offer is how deeply he felt it. Have you ever noticed how these mystical folks, these people with visions, these people with dreams, these people with ecstatic experiences, are never humble? Those things always puff us up. I mean, think of Paul. He was a man who was lifted up into the third heaven. He never talks about it. He never brags about it. He says, in effect, don't take a chance on a trance. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Everything else is sinking sand. So the first lie he talks about is legalism. The second is mysticism. And the third is asceticism. Asceticism is the denial of an ordinary pleasure to gain a holy life. And what Paul is saying is, asceticism and severity of the body is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Why? Because a holy life is never gained by focusing on you. Any degree of holiness we ever achieve, we find as a gift of grace by focusing on Jesus. In the 4th century, there's a man by the name of Jerome. He spent 30 years drinking dirty water and eating barley loaves. He cut his hair once a year on Easter as an act of a contrition. I don't know how much he bathed, but probably not much. Throughout the history of the church, there have been men and women that have lived in swamps naked to show their piety. There are others who have lived in an open field and eaten grass like animals as a sign of their contrition, a desire to mortify their flesh, a desire to let God know how holy they are. And all these things are done for one reason. To gain something from God that's gained by our own effort. And Paul says, it's all a fantasy. Paul knows that asceticism and mysticism and legalism deal with externals. There is a place for them, but never a place upon which we are to stand in our confidence of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They are founded on a notion that says, this is what I can do to please God. This is what I can do to earn His favor. This is what I can do to earn His holiness. This is what I can do to measure how far I've gone. And what Paul is saying is you, every time you engage in that, for that purpose, 
are making yourself the measure of all things. That's exactly why Paul believed that in Christ it's all been finished. He believed these things are shadows. The reality is Jesus Christ. Then he came to learn the truth that it's not in religious practice that we find the favor of God. It's in God's gift of grace alone. It's the same truth Robert Wise came to learn in that Alabama living room. It's only by grace that we can stand because only grace can get all the way from our heart or head to our heart. Grace says you can't earn it. Grace says you can't clean yourself up. Grace says you don't merit it all. Grace says unless Jesus does it, it won't be done. In fact, grace says it's all about Him and it's little about us. Believe the good news of the Gospel. Beat it into your heads. All that you need is found only one place. Not in us, but in Him. Think about that. Amen.